I want to invite you now to uh, grab your Bibles and uh, turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 15. And we have the joy this morning of uh, continuing our series uh, in uh, the greatest hits or favorite passages of Scripture, and we have a, uh, the opportunity to uh, hear from one of my favorite preachers, uh, Matt Whitney, a uh, man who, who uh, previously served on our elder team here uh, at the church, who has stepped back in uh, the last uh, couple years, but uh, who is an incredibly gifted man who, who loves Jesus and loves His Word. And so uh, uh, I uh, pray that we will all be blessed as uh, Matt unpacks uh, this parable for us as we look at the story of the product. So I'd invite you to stand and give attention to the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and it reads this. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We're going to skip to verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the, that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard, heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. 
I'll pray for us here in a moment. Father in heaven, we are grateful to come to you on this Father's Day knowing everything that Jesus did to make us your children. And so I ask that you send your spirit today to be our teacher so that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, really quick, Joneses are here, and they actually do have their baby boy this week. So I, I'm like totally spacing on the name right now because I, I, I'm nervous. Uh, Garnet? Oh, yeah, Garnet. Garnet Jones is here, so let's uh, give him a little warm <laughs> welcome. All right. Okay. Cool. All right. Here we go. Um, so the thing about Jesus, <laughs> how's that for a start? Uh, the thing about Jesus is that he was really good at telling stories, right? Like some, some might argue that he has this whole author of life thing going for him, uh, but, but the point still stands. Like the man, or perhaps I should say the God-man, could tell one heaven of a story. Now, as someone who likes teaching and talking and sort of vacillates between the two with a lot of regularity, uh, what drives me crazy about this is just how good Jesus is at it. I mean, consider for a moment a handful of the parables. Like, some of them are like one sentence long, and people will remember it, and they'll think about it, and they'll chew on it for hours and hours afterwards. Some are a bit longer, and in fact, the one that we just read is the longest of Jesus's parables that we have in the Bible. But it's still like, it's like half a page. It's like this half of my page, right? It's incredible. Um, and yet, if you could add up the hours that people have spent thinking about this parable in, in particular, what would it amount to? Like, could, could we even calculate it? And so let me appear to change the subject for a second. It's Father's Day. Unfortunately, since we're not just continuing on through some predetermined sermon series, I can't just preach a simple message on relationships, sex, and money like Rich was able to do for Mother's Day, lucky dog. But I was given a choice, and so I chose this passage, which can be dangerous, right? Like choosing a passage like this on a day like today. Choices, as we'll come to find out, are really the danger for anyone who listens to Jesus' parables. Jesus, speaking much more poetically than I do, would ask us if we have ears to hear. Yet I've started to digress from my digression, and so let me bring us back to Father's Day. So I'm willing to bet that most of us have or had a pretty decent relationship with our dads. Like, of course, there are the rough patches here and there, and you've both said things that you later regretted. But as far as relationships go, it's at least approaching something that a therapist would be willing to move on from. But there are others of us for whom this relationship in particular has created such deep scars, carried so much pain, anger, and confusion, and created so much bitterness that I know even these preliminary comments are enough to make you already want to leave. And so I'm just asking that you won't. You know, there's a lot of different ways that Jesus could have told us to refer to God. But if we take his example, when he talked to God, he always called him Father. Every time. Except once. And we'll come to that later. The parable of the prodigal son is a favorite for many of us, largely on account of the way that the, the, the way Jesus portrays the prodigal's father. 
Now, I don't know who was in charge of marketing when they wrote the Bible, but we'll call it a swing and a miss that they didn't call this the parable of the forgiving father. And as an aside, I will not be teaching a class on how we derive the biblical canon anytime soon. The context for this parable was given to us in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, when it said, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus goes on to paint a couple of pictures for them to tell them what he's trying to do. First parable, a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Pop quiz class, how many get lost? One. Good job. The shepherd leaves the 99 with somebody, apparently, and he goes to find the one. Second parable, a woman with 10 coins. And I read all the commentaries about this. You know how much these coins were worth? They were worth something. <laughs> no one knows. They're just coins. A woman with 10 coins. How many does she lose? One. Yeah, thank you guys for participating. Third parable. A father with two sons. How many are lost? Ooh, ooh. There's a disagreement in the crowd. This is what I want to hear. Yeah. Okay, so... If I were Jesus, I would probably give you some cryptic hints about how to understand what we're going through today, but I'm not Jesus, and so I'm just going to tell you my main point now in the hopes that you don't, I don't know, stub your toe on it later. Here's our problem. The human heart can find itself alienated from God through both irreligion and religion, and this alienation destroys community. And so here's how we're going to work the problem today. Seeing the beauty of sacrificial love causes the sinner to repent and the self-righteous to soften and a brand new community to form. And so I hope we can see this through the story of a repentant younger brother, an unconventionally gracious father, and a bitter older brother. And so I'm going to be honest with you. We're going to spend the majority of our time with the younger brother. That's usually how this goes even though I honestly believe that this parable is about the gracious Father's forgiveness. It's actually, and it's, on top of that, it's actually not told necessarily for the sake of the younger brothers in the crowd. It's told for the sake of the older brothers in the crowd. It's told for the sake of the scribes and Pharisees who are complaining. But it is the younger brother's rebellion that sets the table for the father's extravagant love and the older brother's bitterness. And so hopefully the imbalance here won't be too awkward as we go. And maybe you'll find that through a familiar story, you might learn a little something about yourself. And if we could be so fortunate, maybe we'll learn a little bit more about the heart of God. And so part one, the repentant younger brother. Now, so as we start with this story, a younger brother has an absurd request. He has a self-imposed exile, and he has a vision of home. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now there's a certain absurdity to these two, first two verses and surely almost everybody in that room with Jesus would have chafed at the younger brother's request. Father, give me my share of the property. Now, I'm definitely not the first person who's ever pointed this out, but the property that this son is referring to, this was his share of the inheritance. And of course, inheritance worked back then the way that it works right now, 
which is to say you're at least supposed to wait for somebody to die. The commentators are quick to point out how crass and irreverent this request is. And so a lot of you have probably read Tim Keller's book about this, Prodigal God, and so I'm just going to use his words here when he says, the younger, the younger son here is basically telling the father, I want your stuff, but I don't really want you anymore. It's a request that would have scandalized everyone listening to Jesus' words. What kind of son treats his father like this? One commentator stated that a traditional Middle Eastern father would have been expected to respond to such a request by driving the son out of the family with physical and verbal blows. Yes, a traditional father would probably do that. And some of you might have fathers like that. I mean, some of you might have had a father who, with his words, could make you feel like you were three inches tall, or perhaps worse. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying this to make light of it, but Dexter Finley and I like to talk about comedians with each other, and there's an interview with Bill Burr where he's talking, up, talking about growing up in the 1970s, and he tells about the time that his little brother yelled at his mom, I hate you! <laughs> and Bill Burr's father takes a glass of milk and just splashes it in his face. He's just like, holy cow. Now, it's kind of funny. The audience laughed but it's only funny for as long as you don't really think about it. Because as soon as you do, I mean, yeesh. Or, and this is my last example here, um, a number of years ago I had a friend who had started deconverting from Christianity. I believe the cool kids today refer, this, refer to this as deconstruction. Now, this person was converting from a conservative form of Christianity into a progressive form of secularism. They were converting to what I'm sure most of us would negatively refer to as wokeism. So I'm guessing that this person didn't mean to be as horrendously racist as this is about to sound, but on multiple occasions I had heard them say, yes, I do think that God is a father, but it feels like he's an angry Asian father who's always disappointed in me. Now, my goal here is not to comment on ethnic stereotypes, nor is it really to just criticize woke people. They don't tend to mean to be racist. But rather, to just draw, our, draw out the point that there are all types of fathers who would respond to a request like this with negativity. And I bring that up to put this father in this parable in stark contrast to these types of fathers. As much as his audience was scandalized by the son's request, they'd be even further scandalized by the father's response. He granted his son's request. Granting the son's request went against every cultural expectation. Hebrew teaching at that time specifically told you not to do this. You know, if you, if you have a Catholic Bible in the Apocrypha, you can still read in the Wisdom of Ben Sirah, chapter 33, where it says, Never, as long as you live, give anyone power over you, whether son, wife, brother, or friend. Don't give your property to anyone. You might change your mind and have to ask for it back. As long as you have breath in your body, don't let anyone lead your life for you. It is better that your children be dependent on you than the other way around. Keep control over all that you do. Don't let anything stain your reputation. Wait until the last moment of your life when you are breathing your last, and then divide your property among the heirs. Now certainly, the Pharisees and scribes in that room would be familiar with a passage like this. 
And so we do know that this father is willing to part with his property, his dignity, as the wisdom of Ben Sarah says. He's willing to part with his power. Sarah says, don't let anyone lead your life for you. You know, it says in verse 12 that the father divided his property between his sons. And the word translated here is property. It's interesting. It's actually the word bios, as in biology. The father divided his life, not just his property, between his sons. Now, I want to mention this briefly, because I don't actually think this is one of the points that Jesus had in mind when he told this story. But a lot of us need to be reminded that sometimes the worst thing that God can do for you is to give you exactly what you want. I mean, sure, you can trade a place in the father's house for younger brother-type cheap thrills like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but the human heart, being what it is, can leave the father's house for the sake of a certain career, for a ton of money, for a hyper-fixation on fitness, for an overwhelming desire for fame and accolades. There are all sorts of things that your heart can want and sometimes it's the most gracious thing of God not to give them to you. What else do you think it means in the Bible when it talks about the judgment of God as giving people over to their desires? It was C.S. Lewis who pointed out that there are two types of people in the world, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. And the younger brother certainly got it his way, and he got it good and hard. Right? So we come to his self-imposed exile. At the beginning of verse 13, the younger son packs up his stuff and leaves, and by the end of that same verse, he's broke. To make matters worse, in verse 14, a severe famine emerges, and he goes from being broke to being desperate. The story suggests that the son is away for a number of years, and we're not given the details about how his life fell apart, but I'm reminded about one of Hemingway's characters in one of his novels, novels who's asked how did you go bankrupt? He said, two ways, gradually and then all at once. So the prodigal son was, well, he was a prodigal. He was a spendthrift. He was a profligate. He was a self-indulgent, irresponsible, intemperate young man. And yes, you too can Google synonyms for prodigal and figure out all the other words that I didn't put in here. But to put it bluntly, he was a guy in Proverbs that you're supposed to avoid, both in terms of example and in terms of company. Later in the story, it seems to indicate that the brother had sold off all of his clothes or at least lost them. He doesn't have shoes anymore. And it is so bad that this Jewish son finds himself hired out to a pagan pig farmer longing to fill his belly with the pods that the pigs were eating. Now, I don't, I don't have much to add here. You know, if Jesus wanted us to know how he lost his money, he would have told us. The point is, is that he's broke, and, he, and he's got no one but himself to blame. And what, I, what I'm going to say here probably wasn't a point that Jesus was going to make, but it's a point I want to make um, again. <laughs> you know, we're about to approach the part right before the son comes to himself, right, and repents. So question, before coming to himself, is this son experiencing hardship or green pastures? Now, in a room with this many people, even though light as it is on a Father's Day, some of you, I actually know you. 
And so I know it's no small chance that there are some in here who are experiencing hardship right now. And so I want to be careful before I ask this next question. Because here's what I want you to do for me. Just pretend I gave you all the qualifications you'd wish I'd give you to make, to make this question land with the love that's intended behind it. When do you learn more about yourself and God? During times of peace or times of trial? When do people typically experience the greatest growth? Does it come through difficulty or does it come through ease? There's a reason that Jesus told us, blessed are the poor in spirit and not blessed are the middle class in spirit, which consequently describes the two brothers quite well. But I get ahead of myself. Because it's here in his poverty and his destitution and despair that the younger brother has his vision of home. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. For the younger brother, this is probably the point that I want to hone in on the most, okay? So Stick with me here. The younger brother here embodies an ethos that so many in our culture today have. Tear off the restraints. Don't let anyone stand in your way. Become your true self. And don't let anyone tell you differently. This is what a lot of academics refer to now as individual self-expression, where the guiding principle is to live your own truth and really to hell with all the consequences. However, if you've lived a little bit of life or perhaps read a little bit of Bible, you know that this way in particular, this type of path to self-discovery, fulfillment, and satisfaction is one that will ultimately leave you empty, spiritually impoverished, and ultimately separated from the true source of joy. A spirit twisted inward on itself is incapable of seeing the joys of heaven. You need to look outward and upward for that. So what changed for this younger brother? Well, as we mentioned, his circumstances have changed significantly, haven't they? Is he sorry for his current situation? Yes, of course, obviously, who wouldn't be? Might I suggest to you that if you've blown all your money on drinking, you've sold off the clothes on your back, you have at least one and a half STDs, and you don't have a pair of shoes anymore, then perhaps your plans for your life have failed in spectacular fashion. He went to find himself, and he came up empty. So he's sad about the situation that he's currently in, understandable enough. And it's quite possible, if not incredibly common, for people to finally reach out to God when they're in troubled circumstances. You know, you've, you've been a boorish pig of a man and she's ready to leave you and take the kids with her. That might be enough of a shock to make you want to change. You know, you've developed a habit of therapeutic shopping and now the credit, cards are pi credit card bills are piling up. That might be enough of a shock to the system to make you want to change. You've been enjoying a few more drinks each night recently and on a day where you didn't have access to alcohol, you noticed your hands were shaking. That might be enough of a shock to make you want to change. And perhaps it's not a shock to the system, but a confrontation. You know, how do people typically respond to confrontation? You know, have you ever tried reasoning with someone in addiction? 
Have you ever attempted confronting a dishonest coworker about their business practices? Have you ever told your husband that he's not allowed to cuss at the furniture in front of the kids? That one might be a little too specific. Um, how do people typically respond when you point out their wrongdoing? How often does it work like that? Ever? <laughs> you know, in my experience with sin, feeling bad about the consequences of my sin has never promoted lasting change. Perhaps it's pro provided me with a desire to change, but not enough for the change itself. In my experience with relationships and counseling, simply telling someone that they are, are wrong has never created lasting change. People must come to themselves. There is no other way for this type of change to happen and for it to happen genuinely. And sure, obviously, shock and confrontation, they have their own role in bringing us to that point of confronting yourself, but they're not enough to do it on their own. So, is the son shocked and grieved about his circumstances? Yes, but I would draw your attention to 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about worldly grief and godly grief. And he tells us worldly grief, which is a grief that occurs when you're simply sad about the consequences of your sin and not sad about the sin itself, that kind of grief only produces death. But godly grief, a grief that sees the heart of God and says, I can't believe I'd sin against a love like that, that sort of grief produces true repentance and true life. So what kind of grief does the son have here? Well, let's look at the evidence. First off, he gets the order right in verse 18. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. It echoes the words of King David in Psalm 51. O oh God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He sees his sin first against God and then against his fellow man. He has it in the right order. Second, he's ready to bear the consequences of his sin. He's not saying, well, I'll go back to my dad and say, well, hey, listen, you were pretty rough on me back there for all those years, and I just had to, had to sow my wild oats, and you understand what it's like being a young man. None of that. None of that. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me a hired man. He's ready to bear the consequences. And third, and most importantly, he's driven by a hunger for something greater. What does he see when he comes to himself? He sees a vision of home. He's had this, his time with reckless living, and it's led him to the pigsty. He sees something greater. He sees his home. Thomas Chalmers was a Puritan theologian, Tommy Chalmy, his friends would call him. And he... <laughs> <laughs> and he has a message entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it, he argues there's basically two ways that people can change. And really, only one of those ways works. Okay? So way one is to show people the relative futility of their ways. It's to tell them about how the consequences of their selfishness will lead to brokenness, will lead to sorrow and misery and all of that. It's to tell them that if they're driven by sexual desire, they'll never truly be satisfied. It's to tell them if they're driven by a lust for the comforts of this world, they'll never truly have peace. It's to tell them that if they're driven by a lust for money, you can just remind them that there's no hearse traveled by a U-Haul, which... Thomas Chalmers actually didn't say that last part because they didn't have U-Hauls back then. Um, I believe they were called thou halls. <laughs> Shake your head, that's okay. Anyway, you guys get the point. Um, 
So that's one way to drive out evil desire from the human heart, and it doesn't work. Here's the other way. Okay, I have a glass here, all right? Um, I work in a laboratory with all sorts of sophisticated equipment. What do you guys think is the best way to get the air out of this glass? Okay, fine, you guys know the analogy. <laughs> fine. Well, I brought a piece of equipment in to illustrate the point. I'm not going to go, I'll spill it if I go any further. Anyway, yeah, that was new to me. I'm surprised that you guys knew it. <laughs> All right, the best way to get rid of the air is to replace it with something weightier, is to replace it with water. And that's Chalmers' point. In order to drive out the old desires, they must be pushed out with greater, weightier desires. So what is the water that fills the younger brother's glass? It's his vision of home, as I've said. But how many of us have been betrayed by our own return home? Like how many addicts have visited their old stomping grounds in the hopes of reclaiming a more innocent time? Have you ever been emotionally distraught when you go back to your childhood neighborhood and see the development around your home eating away at it or perhaps the dilapidation corrupting it? A vision of home is a dangerous thing because it frequently betrays our nostalgic longings. C.S. Lewis wrote about it, his, this, uh, this longing for home, this yearning like this. He said, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. And to the son's surprise and to the surprise of everyone with ears to hear, the son is not betrayed by his vision of home. In fact, it's greater than his wildest dreams. And so we move to part two, an unconventionally gracious father. Verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. And uh, he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now we'll move through the father's response to his son's return a little bit more quickly by talking about his compassionate embrace, the son's bumbling confession, and the son's restoration. And honestly, it is a shame that we'll move through this quickly, but we'll just take whatever observations we can while we go. The son is on his way home, and while he's still a long way off, the father sees him, feels compassion, runs out to him, hugs him, kisses him, cries over him. He is elated that his son has returned. Now, to be clear, Middle Eastern patriarchs do not run. They do not hike up their robes and show off their knees. 
It is undignified. It is unseemly. It is unworthy of, the, of a man with the sort of status that a Middle Eastern landowner with a household full of servants is supposed to have. I mean, my goodness, what are the neighbors going to say about this? After the way that boy treated him, well, he ought to make him stand outside and wait. Well, he should have to grovel to come to his father on his hands and his knees. He should get a beating like never before. That's what I would do, that louse. But the father does not care. My boy, <laughs> my boy is back home. You know, if, if any of you have been close to a person like this prodigal son, you've probably thought to yourself, you know, the next time I see this guy, it's probably going to be at their funeral. So imagine the father's surprise. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And is, in his compassion and in his elation, he embraces his wayward son and hardly lets him mutter his bumbling confession. And so there are some commentators out there who suggest that the son here is being disingenuous, that he's just trying to manipulate his father again, and he's still just being as self-serving as he was at the outset. And I disagree with them simply because this younger brother never actually existed. Right? Jesus made him up in order to tell this story. And so it seems clear to me that Jesus intends for us to understand that this son simply recognizes that he has forfeited all the rights of sonship and is just appealing to the father's mercy for help. He's not asking to be reinstated as a son. He's asking to be hired as a servant. And in all likelihood, Jesus intends us to understand that this son is trying to pay his father back. The son sinned against the father, correct? Obviously. And sin always incurs a debt, right? You guys with me on that? He took his father's money, but he also took his father's honor. He took his father's joy. He took his father's love away with him into the far country. And so what is the son doing here with this confession other than acknowledging his guilt and trying to make it up to his father? Which makes the father's interruption here all the more meaningful. The father isn't looking for the son to pay him back. He's just looking for his son. Now, pretend with me for a moment that this father was real. What would drive someone to respond like this? I mean, imagine for a moment that the father spent all of his time imagining how he'd tell his son off if he ever saw him again. Imagine that he fantasized about teaching that boy a hard lesson, making him take the lowliest job on the estate if he ever returned. Imagine if the father were a violent man, as many fathers in that day were, and imagine that he fantasized about beating the daylights out of his son in order to restore the father's own honor in the eyes of the community. If that's how the father had been treating his son in his mind for all those years, if the father dwelled in bitterness while his son dwelled in a distant country, then when his son returned, he'd be met with the sort of harshness that I just described. And so since the father greets his son with running, with hugs, with kisses, it's because in the father's imagination, he's been running out to greet his son for years. He's been kissing his son in his heart for years. He's been imagining falling on his son's neck with tears of joy for years. And this father may not have ever actually existed, but he points us to a father that does. 
You know, Jesus, when he's confronted with the sinful, needy, and broken, his emotional life is described to us using the exact same word used of the Father here. He has compassion on them. In another passage, Jesus tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus' compassion, you've seen the Father's compassion. This is the heart of ultimate reality. Have you experienced it? And here's a good litmus test for whether or not you have. Does your heart ache with compassion for the sinful and the lost? Do you have compassion on those who have wronged you? Or do you dwell in the land of bitterness? So the father doesn't let him finish his confession, and he moves immediately to restore his son. But here's a little truth I've found out about the heart of God. As soon as you realize you deserve nothing, he's ready to give you everything. I'll say that again for the people in back. As soon as you realize you deserve nothing, he's ready to give you everything. God can work with sin of any kind. He can deal with any prodigal of any stripe. He can deal with any sort of dishonor, shame, and misery that you might bring to him. The one thing that God cannot work with, though, is a prideful heart. Psalm 138.6 states this, that for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. God knows the proud from afar because they still dwell in the distant country. But his son, this father's son, has come home. And this father doesn't hesitate for a second to reinstate him. Bring the best robes. These would be the father's robes. There are no other best robes. Oh, sorry. Put a ring on his finger. This is probably a signet ring. He's putting the son back into the family business, allowing him to make contracts with that ring. Get him some shoes. Like, wait, where did, what did you do with your shoes? Where did your shoes go? Only slaves walk around with bare feet. Get my son some shoes. And kill the fattened calf. Get a band over here. Invite the whole neighborhood. This is not a funeral potluck. This is a resurrection feast. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, to be clear, this parable is not about parenting. It's not advice on how you should deal with a prodigal child of your own who might, may be in the throes of addiction. However, seeing the heart of this father should influence your heart as a parent. This is a parable about the heart of God when one sinner turns from his ways, when a sinner repents and comes back home. In the previous parable about the lady's coin, Jesus said there is more joy before the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, I'm sure the angels are rejoicing too, but in heaven, who's dancing before them? Now, I imagine at this point, Jesus looks at his listeners, and certainly some of the sinners and tax collectors are wiping away tears. I mean, could, could this possibly be true? Could God actually be like this? Is this really God's heart towards sinners who return home? The Pharisees and scribes, on the other hand, look at Jesus with suspicion. What's he up to here? Where's he going with this? And in the popular imagination, this is where the story ends, right? Right? Well, 
not so fast because we got to deal with a bitter older brother. An unwelcome surprise. Um, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. You know, big brother comes in from the field where he's been working hard all day, and he realizes something a little different. Swings around the side fence, and he sees the, the thou hall sitting in the driveway. Kidding, the younger brother didn't have anything, wouldn't need a thou hall. The older brother, no, 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 not him. He pulls a servant aside and asks, what's happening here? The servant tells him, hey, your, your brother's back. <laughs> I mean, your dad invited like, like everybody and they're just slaughtering the fattened calf now. Like, I, I can't believe what he looks like, man. Like, but I mean, hey, he's here. I mean, he's safe and sound. You should go see him motionless. The brother just stands in the driveway, music playing, people moving here and there, and him planted like a post. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. What's this son been imagining since his brother's exile? You know, younger brother types, they're, they're pretty easy to pick out, right? Like you see them stumbling around Fort Collins when college classes are back in session, going from party to party. Uh, you see them addicted on the streets. You see them at the mission. Uh, you see them in all sorts of really kind of obvious sin manifestations, right? Older brother types, they're, they're a little bit harder to pick out because where do you see them? Well, you see, you see them typically here. Okay. You see them working faithfully at their jobs honorable members of the community, on school boards, in nice cars, high achievers, coaches, leaders, pastors, managers, money makers, etc. You want to be neighbors with older brother types. They tend to be middle class in spirit, right? They don't, they don't want handouts. They don't need mercy, or so they think. And yet we get a few hints here about what's going on with the elder brother's own self-imposed exile. His father comes to him, but he looks at his father and says, look, you know, which is meant to strike us as disrespectful. Uh, since we live in more crass times, it's really more something like, like a son saying to his father, now you shut up and you listen to me. These many years I have served you. I actually like the, the way the NIV translates this a little better. It says, these many years I've been slaving for you. It's ironic, isn't it? That one son comes back and says, please make me a hired servant while the other son who never left home, who has ate at his father's table, who's being groomed to inherit the family business, that son has been a slave in his heart the whole time. Turns out exile doesn't always require you to leave home. And so I'm curious if anyone's experience of Christianity is more like this elder brother's. Is it just slavish obedience? One son comes back hoping to be a servant, another who never left, has the heart of a slave. And this, we should at least guess by now, has nothing to do with the way their father treated them. The elder son goes on, I never disobeyed your command. Yeah, dad, you're just a command giver. You're a taskmaster. You're a slave driver. You know, one can't help but realize that the father is not out in the driveway telling his son, get in there. 
You're embarrassing me. The whole town is here, and I don't care that you don't like your brother. He's your brother. I'm your father. Get in there. Instead, we read at the end of verse 28, he came out and entreated him, not commanded him. This son has a horrendously distorted view of his father. Comparing yet again, we see one son alienated from his father's heart through disobedience, another son alienated through his obedience. The elder brother goes on, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And of course the father replies here, what friends? Kidding. (laughs) Not this father. He's not petty, nor bitter, nor egocentric and backbiting. We already have a pretty good view of this father's compassionate heart. Now, I'm honest enough here to admit the fact that the brother's response is understandable, right? The younger brother was given everything and he lost it all. He's not even like the deserving poor at this point because he became poor through his own terrible choices. And as accurately accused here, the younger brother devoured their property. The remainder of that property then meant that it was promised to the older brother. So if the younger brother's back in the picture, what does that mean for the older brother's inheritance? Can you sympathize with why he's angry? I mean, how do you know if you've got a bitter brother's heart? Well, one thing is to think of the way that you respond when someone receives a reward that they did not deserve, when they receive grace. And I won't go into examples here, but I'll trust that for those of you for that line that was meant for, that the Spirit of God will work that into you. Now quickly, let's look at the Father's gentle plea. First, he bears the shame of his son's absence. He doesn't command him to come in. The Father leaves his party guests behind, and once again, he bears the shame of a wayward son. Second, he reminds the son of his position and relationship to his father. He says, son, you are always with me, and all I have is yours. It bears mentioning here that when he addresses him by saying, son, the translation here doesn't quite capture it. This is a term of endearment. This is, this is what you call a, call a small child. This is like when I talk to Ezra and tell him, buddy, 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 buddy. His father's going out, buddy. Hey, I'm your dad. I love you. My boy, my dear boy. And third, He gently corrects him. Did you notice in verse 30, the older brother accuses the father, says, but when this son of yours came home, verse 32, the father says, it was fitting for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what we have in this parable are two brothers exemplifying two approaches to God. What's funny to me is how the younger brother types will typically look at the older brother types and say, you know, you're, you're, you bigoted, moralistic, self-aggrandizing, money-obsessed, conservative type of people. You're what's ruining the world. You're the problem. And the older brothers look at the younger brothers and say, it's you self-discovery, rebellious, lazy, can't balance a budget, liberal people who are ruining the world. You're the problem. And it takes someone like Jesus to tell us, now guys, puts his hands on their shoulders and says, you're both ruining the world (laughs) in your own special and unique ways. You're all the problem. And it feels hazardous handling a parable like this and trying to explain it all to you. Because after all, 
Jesus tells these stories for the sake of creating mystery and contemplation. And so this story ends abruptly. One son in the party, one son on the outside. Does he go in? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think that neither of these brothers ever existed because it's a story Jesus made up. The tension is intentional. Because you know who did exist? The people listening to Jesus speak. They were real people, and they really heard this story, and they really had a choice forced on them. Would they listen? Do they have ears to hear God's generous invitation? Do they have feet that will walk into the kingdom feast, or will they walk away? You know, some have pointed out that this story has forgiveness without sacrifice. It has reconciliation without atonement. It, that sort of bloody salvation that churches like the crossing believe in is nowhere in sight, right? Well, um, rather than argue that it does, I want to finish our time here by trying something a little different. Um, I want to imagine what it would be like for a Pharisee leaving a dinner party where Jesus just told this story. Now, to be clear, I'm not Jesus, and this is no parable. It's just the best way, I thought, to bring this message home. So let's name our imaginary Pharisee Rabbi Ben Ezra, because I like the name Ezra. And so this is the tale of Rabbi Ben Ezra. Rabbi Ben Ezra beheld the group gathered in that dimly lit room. The sinners, revilers, and drunkards hung on Jesus' every word. The Pharisees and scribes beheld him with a bit more suspicion. If the goal had been to create peace between the two, it hadn't worked that night. Like boys and girls at a middle school dance, the two factions kept to their sides of the room until they all slowly trickled out. Some of the Pharisees were unimpressed with the miracle worker. Others pretended to be unimpressed. Rabbi Ben Ezra was one of them. He traveled home to Jerusalem, contemplating the parables. The next day, he related to his wife the story of the two sons and their ridiculous father. Can you believe that? He said. Can you imagine a father allowing his sons to get away with that sort of behavior? He looked at his own two sons, one diligently studying Torah for school, the younger using some sticks to pretend to he, that he was fighting off the Romans. Better to not get lost at all in the first place, he muttered to himself and kissed his sons on the head. A few weeks later, he was walking to synagogue and suddenly found himself thinking of the younger brother's long trek home. I honestly can't imagine treating my father like that. He shook his head and bowed as he entered the room. That evening, they read from the scroll of Isaiah, and two verses stood out to him as if it were the first time ever hearing them, as if his ears were working for the first time. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. He walked home that evening, thinking of the heavens, the trees, the mountains, all rejoicing. And he considered the Father's party. Over and over, the words rang in his head, Return to me, return to me. Out of the blue, he muttered loudly, But I never left. His family looked at him. He stared at them for a moment, shook his head, and kept walking. He dreamt that night that he was at the father's house, listening to the commotion and the music, but he was on the outside and couldn't find a door, though he searched for it frantically. He awoke in a sweat. 
and it suddenly dawned on him. The younger son is Israel. The son's exile was his people's exile. The father's exuberance was God's exuberance to restore the people on the last day. He was satisfied that he had cracked the code, and he went back to sleep. The next morning, though, he was still bothered by something. Turning to his wife, he said, You know, for the sheep, his wife interrupted him, Are you talking about that prophet's parables again? Yes, he said. So, for the sheep, they had a shepherd that went out and searched for them. And there was a woman searching for the coin, but no one went out to search for the son. I think he was trying to tell us that the older brother should have. It would have restored the father's honor. Anyway, that's what I would have done. His wife looked at him, unconvinced, and then spoke with the casual wisdom that only women possess. But someone did go out and look for the younger brother, or look for the brother. I never told you that, said Ben Ezra. Yes, you did, she said. Every time you've told me this parable, the father goes out to seek the older son. He stared at her. I had a dream last night. He started. He got up from the table. You know, he said, Jesus was going to Jerusalem for Passover. I think I'll find him and speak with him again. Jesus had a busy week in Jerusalem. Rabbi Ben Ezra was unable to pull him aside. Friday morning, he heard the news that Jesus had been arrested. He rushed over and could hardly believe his eyes. There, he saw the twisted faces of his fellow Pharisees hurling insults and accusations at him. There was a darkness in their eyes he'd never observed before. He stood shocked as the guards stripped Jesus of his robes and shoes and stood there naked, naked as the wayward brother. He watched him beaten and flogged, and he thought of the father's forbearance toward his sons. He watched as Jesus was exiled out of the city to the unclean hill of Calvary, crucified between two criminals who screamed and squealed at him like pigs. He listened as this prophet, accused of blasphemy for calling God his father, cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he watched as he yelled and begged with his accusers, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Ben Ezra heard his final cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, as the last bit of air left his lungs. And he watched as the centurion plunged his spear into his side, and water poured out. He heard a Roman guard, an outsider to his people and an outsider to his God, proclaim, truly this was the Son of God. He thought of the dream, as helpless now to do something for Jesus as he was to get into the house. What did it all mean? He contemplated his fellow Pharisees, their elder brotherishness. They stood outside hearing his invitation for forgiveness, and they walked away. He stood there, shocked, appalled, and confused. He felt stuck on the outside. Then he heard the rumors circling Jerusalem, the veil of the temple's curtain had been torn in two. In his heart, he felt a door begin to open. That Sabbath passed, with, and Ben Ezra hardly spoke a word. Something was working on him. Something was working in him. Something was helping him come to himself for the first time. Sunday morning, there were rumors and whispers. He found some of Jesus' disciples, and they shared what their women had seen that morning. An unexpected hope filled his heart. And he thought of the words, for my son was dead and is alive again. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, I do pray that amidst the abundance of words that just came out of my mouth, that for those who needed to hear something particularly, that you would drive that home for them. That if there are wayward prodigals here, that they would hear the call to come home. If there are the self-righteous Pharisee types here, that they would sense themselves sobered of their own self-righteousness and ready to accept your love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy. I pray that a vision of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf would drive our hearts towards worship, love, and softness and create for us and in us the ability to start a community, to create a community that shows the world the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.